Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Coming up next on the Liverbird Sailing Podcast. And close to home to me is the South Pacific. And I've been to a lot of islands in the South Pacific. And that is just absolutely fascinating. The more you study the culture and appreciate that each island has its own language, its own dance, its own history, its own... They're amazing people right throughout the South Pacific. And to have that culture still intact in their own language and sense of family and belonging is is incredibly precious. Hi there, and thank you for tuning in again. I am your host, Annika, and this, of course, is the Liverboard Sailing Podcast. My next guest has decades of sailing experience, and she has a wealth of knowledge about all things sailing. It is not often that I talk about so many different things in one interview, but in this one, we cover things to know about rigging, her sailing experience in both polar regions and in all the amazing places in between. We also talk about what stands out to her from her experience of sailing around the world on board Maiden and share a lot of good resources for anyone interested in the sailing lifestyle. Trust me, this episode is a good one. Here is Amanda Swan. You have decades of sailing experience and expertise and I had a little bit of a hard time narrowing down my focus for this episode, and I think I will end up asking a lot of questions that may not be exactly related to one another, but I'm sure they will be useful regardless. And one thing I did want to talk to you about, and I w- what I think that a lot of listeners will find useful as well, is about rigging, since you are a rigger and a sailmaker. So... As someone who doesn't have decades of experience with boats, what are some of the essential things to know about rigging, especially when you may be boat shopping? Or is that just a thing that it's better left to the professionals? Well, that's a tricky one because 
when you buy a boat, it obviously comes rigged if you're looking at sailboats. You need to then, it's like with most things on a boat, try and get as much knowledge as you can. But the first thing you want to consider is how old is the rigging because insurance companies stipulate that you replace the rigging at 10 years. So if you don't know how old the rigging is, then you might be forced to replace the rigging sooner than necessary. Bearing that in mind, you want to try and avoid Chinese rigging. So if you replace really nice rigging with Chinese rigging, it, there's a possibility it could be inferior quality and it can rust. So when you do get your rigging replaced, it needs to be a really good source so that you know that you've got good quality stainless steel and it's not going to rust on you and that the fittings are compatible because you're also looking at metric and imperial sizing. So even if you think, hey, maybe it's going to be cheaper for us to sail to America and place the rigging there, then nothing's going to be the same size as what it is in Europe. So there's a few things to consider as to what you're doing with your where you're going and when the replacement time is up. Right. That's interesting. I didn't uh, realize that there is also this sort of made in China, maybe a quality issue or imperial versus metric. So is it if you have a boat that was built in Europe, you should really get all the rigging stuff done in Europe because it may not exactly match inches to centimeters in North America. Right. It's going to be totally different sizing. So if you've got rigging screws and fittings that slot into something, then everything has to, it's like building a Lego set. You can't switch brands with rigging. So you need to stick with one brand. So if you're rigging Selden or Isomat or French, or that's another thing you need to know what brand of rigging you have. So if it's all one company, that's great. You can just go to a company that specializes in that brand. So that's another thing you need to look for. Selden is a brilliant Swedish company and they put stamp part numbers on all their fittings. So say if you're gooseneck breaks you can order part 315-217 and then they can just ship you that part and you can just put it on your rigging you don't have to drill new holes or make it compatible or since everything is it's very detailed parts and lots of little fittings and everything's like a meccano set when they build the boat so when things break you've got to try and match it all again yeah, exactly. Well, it is certainly something that is very detailed and it's an area that I know very little about so far. And I thought, well, I wish we make a whole podcast about rigging, but I figured it actually probably is not that beneficial because <laughs> I wouldn't understand half the terms you use. But I'm wondering whether you have maybe any resources or books or something where someone like me could go and learn more. For sure. There is there's like with most things, there's the big Bible of rigging, uh, especially here in America. It's written by a rigger who's since passed away called Brian Toss, B-R-I-O-N. And Brian Toss has written a book called The Rigger's Apprentice. And it's it's slightly old school, so it's very detailed. I mean, it's a massive big book. If you want something just to understand the basics, then there's a rigging book called Illustrated Rig and Sail Tuning. And that is published by a company called Fernhurst. And Iva Dedekin is the author. And you can also get that on Amazon. So that book is a small paperback book with lots of colored pictures. And it talks about the relationship between sales and rigging. So it covers both the sales and the rigging. But Brian Toss's book is sort of the Bible for rigging. Oh, that's perfect. Yes, I will definitely link those uh, in the description so we can all go uh find those uh, somewhere in the online world and, and continue learning or start learning in, in my case. So 
you have been sailing almost your whole life and much of your adult life, you've actually spent teaching others uh, either through sail training expeditions or boat show seminars, which is how I first uh, came across you. Um, and you've also written books. So I do want to talk about uh, a couple of your books. And uh, one of them sort of had me scratch my head a little bit when I saw the title, which is uh, Marine Diesel Engine Essentials, a learning and a coloring book. And at first I thought maybe this is like a kid's book. And uh, then I thought, no, it's maybe it's one of those adult coloring books with profanities or something, but I don't think it's exactly either. So tell me, what is this learning and coloring book and why did you decide to make one on uh, marine uh, diesel engines? Well, at the boat show, I do, oh, I went to a couple of diesel seminars because I'm interested in engines and I thought I need to just keep abreast of things. And I sat there for an hour while the and it was an engine company. While the engine company put a, a black and white diagram, and the guy just stood with one picture for an hour, trying to explain to me how an engine worked. And I was, I thought, oh my gosh. And I came back to when I was doing my engine courses, I really struggled to understand how an engine worked. And I would, back in the day before, there was the internet, but I would just photo, photocopy lots of engine pictures from books, and then I would get different colored pens and draw and marker pens and draw where the water went and do that blue where the oil went through the engine and do that in orange and where the fuel went and I'd do that in yellow and just realize that there were six systems and once I got that down to the basics then each went somewhere and then I related that to the human body so I'm like okay I know how to take care of a baby now if this is my engine it's going to be my baby on board and everything runs around the engine so then I'm like okay it needs good fuel it can't get overheated it needs to uh has the blood is like the oil through the system so I once I worked that out I'm like okay well then this is it was far easier for me to understand how engines work so then I translated that into a coloring in book made each system a different page I hired an artist who hadn't, didn't know her engine. She's a Liverpool school teacher who teaches art. So Andrea then got creative and did these great pictures, actually, for each system. And then that was proved by Nigel Calder, who writes all the engine books, who I go to all his, well, he co-teaches with us. And so it's just sort of a basic book. You sit down, colour in each system. But as a little girl, if I'd had that, rather than colouring in farm animals or Barbie goes shopping, I would, I was like, okay, more just technical, just hearing, just even hearing the terminology and just even coloring in where's the alternator and where's the, so anyway, that was my, my idea. And it's, uh, it's done really well. It's gone to a lot of schools in the UK and America. So three school districts have actually bought the book as a study for the students to color in and, and learn about engines. So, yeah. Oh, that's really cool. And uh, it's so great to hear that it's actually gone to schools as well, because there's uh, certainly opportunities for younger kids to learn these kind of things from the, the basics and not just color dolls and flowers and, and whatever. And uh, personally, I love color coding things. So I think that would actually be a really good way to learn, just color out the different systems, um, as, especially as someone who knows very little about engines, but probably will need to know a whole lot more once I get to sailing. So yeah, that sounds like a really useful book. And another book that you have written, and the one that I actually have here on my desk is the entirely different topic, which speaks to your past experience in the sailing world, is called The Essential Galley Companion, which has hundreds of recipes. 
but also other useful information about provisioning and heavy weather menu planning and food and waterborne illnesses and tips on cooking while underway. And there are some entertaining stories uh, in between there. And I'm wondering, do you have a favorite sort of food-related sailing story or experience from your uh, time in the high seas or coastal waters? <laughs> well, the fact that you're eating three meals a day and then some on a boat, there's, and we're cooking with eight crew generally when I was doing expeditions, there's plenty of enlightening stories. But since you're from Finland, I have a, a, a Scandinavian-related story. So we're in Norway up in Tromsø and heading up to the Arctic, up to Svalbard. And things are not cheap. I mean, it's <laughs> and it's not totally expensive, but I go shopping and I see, I do a chicken curry and I see these these chicken, and I don't speak Norwegian. So I, in the freezer, there's these two chicken or these, the frozen chickens. And I'm like, great. Oh, these ones are cheaper than these ones. So I grab these frozen chickens and they're in a they're in a white bag and these fluffy little chickens on the outside with the mother chicken and the little chickens. I'm like, perfect. So we're halfway across the passage to Bear Island, just leaving Bear Island. It's quite rough. And I'm like, great, this is a perfect night for my chicken curry. So I get the chickens out of the freezer and defrost them and they're full chickens. And I open up the plastic bag and I go to pull the chicken out. And it's just like skin and bone and sort of little feathers sticking out of the chicken. I mean, there is no meat whatsoever on these chickens i mean they, they are just scrawny little like obviously stock or stewing chickens and i'm like this is nothing like the little picture on the front like the fluffy chickens and i i'm like a point to john uh my husband what am i going to do with these chickens i'm like look there's no there's no meat on these chickens whatsoever he goes don't worry just add more potatoes so i chop up the chickens and I throw them into the pressure cooker and I give them an extra 10 minutes, throw in, I mean, there's tons of potatoes, lots of curry and serve the dish on crew, who, to the crew who are on deck, really wet and cold and in this sort of rough weather. So they get this bowl of basically bones and gristle. <laughs> and obviously they sort of push the bones around the, the bowl and ate the potatoes. But now I do that dish, the curry dish with just chicken breasts. I'm like, no, I'm not going to get a full-size frozen chicken again without actually knowing how much meat is on these poor chickens. Oh, that is funny. Oh my goodness. Well, it seems like it turned out and nobody complained. People got food. And I guess it just speaks that you have to get creative sometimes when you're dealing, especially with provisioning in, in destinations where you don't speak the language. True. And that was fun. I thought it was funny. And uh, yeah, I guess buying meats in different countries can you know go any which way you want but hopefully or there's usually like you said there's a little picture of the uh whatever animal is supposed to be so that hopefully helps yeah i know i struck out uh another time i, I going because you are don't speak the language i was in tahiti and it's french and so i grabbed what i thought was and it was in the fish department so i grabbed this thing called al ray and it looked like nice fillets but it was Actually, when I went to cook it, it was stingray, which has a tons of little bones in it. But it's, I mean, it's still a nice little fillet. And being frozen, you can't tell that it's full of, it's the wing of a stingray. So, or a, a kind of, some kind of, you know, ray that lives in the water, al ray. I should have realized, but I just thought al ray must be kind of a fish. And I didn't know it was the actual. So that was, that didn't come out too well either, I'm afraid. So foreign provisioning is always entertaining. So obviously you spent a lot of time then 
cooking, uh, whether it's in uh, exotic foreign marinas or whether it's uh, up in the high seas. And I'm wondering, with that in mind, do you have any sort of um, features you like in a galley or what you think that are just essential to have? Uh, for me, it's uh, there's a lot of features that I like to have in a galley, but you generally don't have a choice. <laughs> like your boat comes with a galley and that's sort of, I mean, you you when you're boat shopping, you're like, okay, there's more important, generally there's more important things than just, I need a big bench and I need three freezers. And I mean, it, there's features I really like. Sliding cupboards are nice. So when you open a cupboard, you're not having to hold the door in your hand. So that's, a, and then you're not opening the cupboard over a bench where there's things standing up. Otherwise you have to put those things away, which means you now you've got two hands full. So if you have a sliding cupboard, I, the list goes on and on double sinks, a grab bar in front of the stove, lighting, a fan. Uh, there's lots of little things that you can change after the fact. But I like a galley that a U-shaped galley more so than a long galley because a long galley you're stepping from one end to the other. I've just been on a Garcia and it's a, the long galley in the main salon and I'm in, yeah, running 10, well, no, yeah, it's about 10 feet, even more, down the length of the bench and then people are passing me and I found having sort of the main salon galley didn't work because on our Halber Grassi, it was a U-shaped galley and you're sort of in your little zone and I like that. No one's coming through, you're, no one's uh, passing by, you're just in your little U-shape and your butt sits in there and it's just your space, which I prefer rather than being on a big, long runway galley that everyone's sort of coming and going. Yeah, for sure. You need a little, little bit of your own space and you can also brace yourself against the, the other side, which which seems quite handy. And uh, yeah, I think all the boats that I've been eyeing uh, do have that U-shaped galley because I'm mainly looking at uh, two cabin uh, sailboats. So uh, they do seem, uh, seem pretty interesting, but you are right that it is sort of not an afterthought, but it's not the main, it's not what you base your boat selection on. You know, there's other things to think about. So you kind of, you'll be stuck with whatever you got basically so one of the reasons one of the many reasons i wanted to talk to you is the fact that you have sailed just about everywhere and uh, one place that we've both been lucky enough to visit is antarctica although i was there on a small expedition ship and you've sailed there on a sailboat and after my first trip to antarctica through a terrible storm i swore i would never set a foot on a ship or a boat or anything and I just wanted to be a landlubber for the rest of my life and uh, well that plan didn't quite work out but I do want to hear about your experience in Antarctica. What is it like as a sailing destination? Uh, it was it's, it was awesome. I think to actually it's one of those pinch me moment places and there's there's quite a few places in the world that are like that but Antarctica for me as a New Zealander, it's so close, but it, yet it's so far to get to. So, it's, I mean, you're from Finland, so for you, you're used to the cold. But, well, and Antarctica for you is is not as so drawing, but as a Kiwi, it's just right beneath us as a New Zealander. So you know it's there. And it's it's hard to get to. Our cruise ships don't actually leave from there. They You have to go to South America and then go down from South America. So it's not as if you can just jump on a cruise ship from New Zealand and head to Antarctica, although we do outfit quite a few bases from Christchurch so if you're in that realm but to actually sail there on your own boat is just incredible freedom you are not tried to the cruise ship realm you're not tied to the 
going to the storm when it is, but it's a lot of logistics for yourself. But uh, incredibly rewarding when it all comes together and you find yourself actually there in the moment in this amazing place. I mean, you just have to, as my first time in somewhere so vast and extreme at the same time, but just the sheer size of the mountains and the beauty and just, um, yeah, no, it's it's a spectacular place and just so captivating. It's hard not to be overwhelmed and just stunned by the beauty there. Yeah, what took me by surprise was the mountains. I, for some reason, hadn't even thought about that there are there would be mountains and that they would be so big. And uh, yeah, like you said, coming from Finland and right now I'm in Eastern Canada, so very flat either way. And uh, yeah, those mountains were just like, wow, they're, they're gigantic. But how long does it take uh, to cross the direct passage on a sailboat? It depends how fast your boat's going and you're looking at it's more so watching the weather system. So you said you're in a storm and as a cruise ship, they're kind of committed, like they're leaving on Tuesday, they're getting there Friday. On a sailboat, you wait at Cape Horn and you wait for the lows to come through and you wait for the high and then you take off. So for us, it was a, I think the Drake Passage is 500 miles. So it's a five day, it's probably at 600, anyway, it's a five day passage. You're looking at uh, five clear days to get across the passage. Oh, no, you, so you want a boat that, then can do some speed otherwise you're going to get hit with the weather systems that come through that small gap between cape horn and the antarctic um, finger that comes up from there yeah that's what i was thinking that i would uh, i think the yeah, these cruise ships which were small that i was told they were like 100 meter long uh, sort of you know for 100 passengers so they took about two and a half three days depending on the <laughs> on the storm but i crossed direct passage both from Ushuaia and from the Falklands a few times and one time there was no bad weather so <laughs> it is not somewhere I'm looking to sail to but I definitely wanted to hear your experience on that. Were you working down there Annika or just traveling? Yeah no I was uh, lucky enough to have two entirely different jobs that both took me to Antarctica so I work in tourism so first one was I was selling trips and that was my first trip I got to go see essentially what I'm selling so I go there as a tourist and then even though I had sworn that I will never step on a boat again two years later I was working uh, in the operations department of an expedition cruise company so I kind of had to keep going to Antarctica. Sure no no I've only been once and it's still very memorable I think every day I can relive in my up those five weeks I can relive in my head so no it's a very special place. Yeah, it is. It is magical. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. But you've also sailed to the other end of the world, pretty close to the North Pole. Uh, so what about Svalbard? How does that compare? Because I don't think it's quite as a stormy place to get to, but how is that as a sailing destination and there's no there's always the polar bears to think about when you're land but what about the the rest of the sailing experience on the other side of the world right so once again you leave Tromsø and sail across the Barents Sea and Bear Island is in the middle so if you're lucky enough you can pull into Bear Island and stop there but then you carry on so it's a the same again you're looking for the polar high so you're looking for that weather system that sits over the poles and once you punch through that the weather is just amazing it's 24 hours sunshine and light and bright and you don't have the moving ice that you have in antarctica so you don't have the big bergs the big i mean Svalbard's not carving big ice and that's moving around like antarctica but other than that it still has massive mountains and huge big fields that are just stunningly beautiful and incredible rock formations. There's not this deep snow that you get in Antarctica. So you can then go hiking a lot more, which is really fun. Uh, bearing in mind, you have to carry a gun for the polar bears. And the, there's quite a few, well, there's a lot of fields that you can travel up. So it's more sheltered. Antarctica, you're quite scrambling a lot to find a sheltered anchorage. And when you're there, you'll stay there a few days before the weather will clear or the ice conditions will clear and you can head somewhere else and not get caught out. Uh, Antarctica, the weather changes quite quickly. You don't get that sunny, sunny, clear days like you do in Svalbard. And from Svalbard, you can then just work your way around and visit the bases and the fields where there's uh, things happening such as the mines that are occurring because they're mining up in Svalbard so the Russians have a mine in quite a few places and uh, a few more cruise ships although it was 96 when I was in Antarctica so there weren't as many cruise ships so it's just amazing when you're in these incredibly places you don't have a sense of scale of size you may see a reindeer but then a cruise ship comes in and it puts it all into perspective because you're not seeing buildings you don't have anything really to compare how vast that once again, how vast and how desolate these places are until you have something to compare it to. Yeah, no, it is. Uh, it seems like a magical place as well. I mean, I grew up in northern Finland, but I've uh, and I've never thought of anything special about the Arctic Circle because it was just there. But uh, I kind of started to get an appreciation once I crossed the Antarctic Circle. It's like, oh, now I'm getting it. This is a cool feeling. I get why people want to go to the Arctic and across the Arctic Circle. And uh, having since learned more about Svalbard uh, during my previous work, although I haven't been there, but it does look like a magical place also to sail to and uh, perhaps slightly easier to get to than, than Antarctica. Antarctica is sort of easy to get there, but the logistics of coming down through Chile, you're still looking at a whole cruising season. There's no support network once you're at Ushuaia. It's very desolate. Whereas in, if you leave to go to Svalbard, you're generally going up through Norway. There's a big yachting community. You leave off from Tromsø, which is a big university town, so you can get parts and spare parts. Great weather, uh, great meteorologic service, so you can then really study the weather before heading off. And then Longyearbyen has a big base and air connection, so you can do a crew change there. As Antarctica, you can't change out crews, so you're basically going five weeks self-sufficient. 
Yeah, exactly. And of course, uh, there are people in Svalbard, whereas Antarctica, if you find some, they're going to be scientists or or other uh, uh, cruisers or, or cruise ship people. But uh, yeah, Svalbard actually has people. <laughs> yes. And very interesting. I mean, all the research stations that throughout Svalbard and then the Norwegians place Schlusselmann. So they every they place people in huts right throughout Svalbard just when the cruise ships come in on polar and they're monitoring polar bears and just general activity. So they're amazing people to visit with. So there's generally two policemen at each of the, the main harbors throughout in summertime. Yeah, no, they are definitely very organized. I dealt a lot with the logistics with my previous job in, in both regions, uh, getting a, a small ship there. And uh, yeah, Norway is beautiful to work with. They they got their uh, systems in place and then there's not a lot to do. So uh, yeah, they, they've definitely got a handle on things over there. <laughs> so, okay, so now we talked about sailing uh, both the sort of polar opposite regions, but you've also visited many, many other places. And I'm wondering, do you have favorite cruising grounds where do you prefer to sail no i don't uh every day is is just exploring the planet i find is just amazing uh certain island groups get to be very intense coming through sand blast and panama you're with the kuna indians and, and lovely people and beautiful anchorages and i enjoy the interaction with the locals uh the men are quite uh, shy but the women do incredible sewing and beadwork and that's just fascinating as i'm a sewer and knitter and quilter and do all sorts of (laughs) brought up keeping busy so it's just amazing to to be in a culture where sewing is very much a part of their lives the women make molar cost or molar clothing in which they sell to get a cash flow for the for the family yeah and closer to home to me is the south pacific and i've been to a lot of islands in the South Pacific. And that is just absolutely fascinating. The more you study the culture and appreciate that each island has its own language, its own dance, its own history, its own... There are amazing people right throughout the South Pacific. And to have that culture still intact in their own language and sense of family and belonging is is incredibly precious when you start traveling the world and realizing we're all becoming a big melting pot which is fun i mean it's really nice the cultural diversity that happens especially in even in new zealand now but to sail the south seas and just have a sense of um uh, just a, a great appreciation for language and and culture and dance and that sense of where they come from is where they belong is is something I find. Uh, I mean, I'm a Kiwi, but a third generation Kiwi. I can trace my roots back to to the Vikings, actually. So it's really fun for me to go to Norway and and just go. Oh, okay. This is. I feel at home here, even though I'm remotely removed. But I mean, I relate to more to Norway than I do to the local South Pacific Islanders because I'm European. Uh, you realize how small the world is, and I'm crossing lots of things here but it's nice to sail there with your home and be and be immersed in a culture and be welcome and experience it on a boat actually I enjoy that very much yeah no I think that's a really interesting point about all the languages and such I find languages really fascinating um, I did end up going to study tourism but I really did want to do linguistics uh, originally I just didn't think that there was necessarily much of a career there or it wasn't I didn't have a career path in my head in linguistics but I do find it really fascinating to just to know that there are so many 
languages that we probably never even heard of, especially on the small islands where there's just, you know, a small group of people who speak that specific language. And uh, yeah, that sounds really uh, fascinating for sure. So in your sailing life, you've also made history by being part of the first ever female crew to participate in the Whitbread Round World Race in 1989 and 90. And it must have been quite the experience to do something not only so challenging, but also historic at 23 years old. And I'm wondering now, uh, three decades later, what stands out to you from that Whitbread Race experience? Oh my gosh. <laughs> uh, Maiden was so monumental for me. And I think what stands out is I probably didn't appreciate the camaraderie. Looking back and having, especially with the Olympics on now and being able to watch the Olympics, I've never really seen the Summer Olympics on TV <laughs> at all, ever in my life. And I've just been in quarantine in New Zealand. So I have two weeks in a hotel room by myself. But just seeing the teams and how hard the teams work. And I look back on Maiden and we were a team and I didn't appreciate at the time how you're trusting your life with your crew. And that bond, I mean, I remember the sailing and I remember the boat, but that doesn't seem to matter now. I think 30 years on, I think it's just that bonding and that trust you had with the other, the 11 other women that I sailed with uh, means more now than the actual boat and the, then then it was all about the sailing I was just so focused on getting the boat going fast I didn't really care who I sailed with I was so focused on becoming a good sailor I was a sailmaker by trade so I was the first woman in New Zealand to undergo sailmaking apprenticeship and that's a four-year apprenticeship and transferred that to Australia for the America's Cup couldn't break through it was a bastion of men and yachting I didn't realize when I took undertook my sailmaking career that I was one of, I was the only woman on the floor with 30 guys. And from then on, I was just surrounded by guys for my whole sailmaking career. When I heard of the Maiden Project, I switched careers. So I became a rigger and just apprenticed under one chap, or one uh, under Sean Langman, actually. I'll do a shout out for Sean in Sydney. If you were in Sydney, Noakes Rigging. But he took me on under his wing because I had this passion to switch jobs. So he basically trained me in six months and I reapplied or I applied for Maiden saying I was a rigger and a sailmaker. So for me, I was very much focused on my profession. It was my career, it was my job. I'm a rigger, I'm a sailmaker, I'm going to sail around the world. And I did. But looking back, the my skills don't matter as much now than the fact that we were we were 12 women who achieved what hadn't been done. No one had even thought we could get to the start line. And I mean, we thought we could. <laughs> we, were, we definitely said, yes, this is what we're doing. And I was just so full of myself back then. And uh, I didn't, I guess now that I look back, um, yeah, as I said earlier, it was the rigging didn't matter now. I think just having the camaraderie of the, the crew and what we did achieve. So you already mentioned this uh, briefly, but you just returned to New Zealand. I call you just at the tail end of your uh, two-week hotel quarantine. But uh, you mentioned to me earlier that you do plan to continue to teach sailing and uh, sort of go back to teaching the basics of sailing. And also that you have a sort of a liverboard sailboat waiting for you. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, so I've just left Mahina Expeditions where I've been teaching offshore sail training on board what was our previous boat which was a Halberg Rassi 46 and that was taking students on board for 
two to three weeks of offshore sail training. And I wanted, I still have to keep working. So I wanted to, to focus on uh, sailing. I could go back rigging, but that's these days it's very technical. You have to count every minute and just being 57 and working with tools and justifying going up the mast and that pressure to, to make every minute count uh, seemed a little too stressful. I could go back sail making, but sail making these days is very much inside. And New Zealand, my hometown is home country is just amazing weather and the opportunities to go sailing you can as a sail maker but i just wanted to be more outdoors so now i'll have the opportunity to work with a sailing school and i'll do a shout out once everything opens because great escape is in the bay of islands in new zealand and it's a our playground so many islands to go explore and i'm teaching basic sailing so for three days i'll take sailors out and it's just two sailors on board a boat and get them from zero to up to speed and then the next three days they spend by themselves going off sailing so i have three days to go through a curriculum from tying knots to navigation to weather planning to sail handling and then you're on your own for three days to go sail and swim and explore and hike and tune and get to know your boat that sounds like a really exciting concept for a sailing course a lot of the ones that i've seen they sort of live aboard you know five people with an instructor and then at least five days and another course for 10 days so that sounds like a really cool way to do it just cram the basics and off you go you're on your own and what a beautiful cruising grounds as well yeah no it really appeals to me because you're still in contact i mean obviously it's a bit like cruising in the bvis where you can rush out on the chase boat and if anything goes wrong so you're not just being launched into the oblivion of ocean big oceans where things can happen so i think it's a nice program as you said you come back to the dock each night so there's time for that learning to occur uh, you get your own space so you're just on the boat in the evenings to study and then I'm just joining you through the day and I can stay aboard the first, your first night out at anchor. So the third night, if you want, you can have the instructor sleep on board and walk you through everything anchoring and get up in the morning and I'll be taken off the boat and you get to sail by yourself. That sounds like a lot of fun, not just for you, but also the people who are doing it. <laughs> yes. And another nice aspect is that uh, the boats I'm sailing on were boats that I built, helped my parents build when I was seven years old so it's a design that's been very iconic in my life an old x22 and an old x30 so i've sort of come full spectrum from a boat that i sailed and my father helped design when i was little right through to 50 50 years later where i'm actually back on board these smaller which i consider smaller boats i mean after a 57 foot ocean sailing boat and racing boat i'm now back to 20 foot boats and i think it's just nice to go back to a tiller and being in touch with sailing and sailing in such a beautiful iconic area i'm thrilled yes now is there anything that i haven't asked you yet that you would uh, want to share to anybody or give out any shout outs to great people or resources or anything oh boy yeah no i'm pretty much in the same boat as you annika i'm going to be living aboard uh, which is our family cruising boat. So my parents have a 36-foot wooden boat, which they take offshore to go up to the Fiji Islands. And now they've uh, very generously have gifted that boat to me as my home. So I'll be moving aboard in a couple of weeks. And, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm like, wow, I'm heading off on this, uh, this liveaboard adventure being a sailing instructor. So um, I just want to say that try and learn as much as you can but don't get overwhelmed and just take every day as it comes, try and process the information and 
turn it around, make it a little bit your own. So just as you go through the learning journey, it, just realize it never stops. It, it never stops. I thought one day I'm going to be the greatest sailor. I mean, this is going back years and, and learn everything. And then I'll just be like, but the fact that you're dealing with nature and boats and it's, it's forever challenging. And I enjoy that aspect. I enjoy getting up in the morning or even the middle of the night if you're dragging anchor and it's like, okay, we've got to figure this out and shift anchor and pull it up and why did we drag? And there's always a reason for something. And I think you need to be organized as a sailor. So you need to just realize what you need to have everything set up. And it's a check, recheck, double check. So you're always you're always questioning what you have and where you're at. And and that's the beauty of it. It's never it's never the same day. You always remember incidences and things that happen, but just build on that and move forward. And it's a very small community. There's always, that's what I love about it, even coming back to New Zealand. I'm just networking with, as I said, I'm going back to a boat that my father built when I was seven years old. And there's still that connection through that boat and the designer or the sailmaker or someone who raced it or the boatyard that I'm at sailing from and it's just nice that the sailing community is one that you instantly connect with and very supportive of each other so if even if you are having a, a bad struggle with something there's there's always a lending hand and i appreciate the community for that and it's uh yeah i enjoy i enjoy a sport that's also a career and it's also very much shaped my life and the fact that it's the wind and she's forever changing and the ocean the two together are just incredible yeah that's basically all you need and and those are really encouraging words to uh, wrap up this episode so amanda thank you so much for being my guest today i really appreciate all the uh, knowledge and and experiences that you shared today thank you annika and thank you everyone for listening i appreciate the time you take out and your busy lives wherever you're driving on the freeway or if you're just chilling on your boat then Come down to New Zealand and I'll always and say you've heard the podcast and I'll have you aboard Julie for a cup of tea. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Amanda. I loved hearing about all the different and far away sailing destinations. And it's always such a privilege to talk to someone who has so much more experience and is willing to share it and help others succeed. If you want to let me and the world know what you think about this episode or the podcast in general, come find me on Instagram or Facebook as Liverbird Sailing Podcast or write up a little review for your fellow listeners on your podcast app. Next week's episode is so filled with real life and practical advice that you might actually need your notebook for that one. So I'll see you in the next episode. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 